0: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, it's Manveen here. Today's podcast is the latest episode in an ongoing series made by our production team here at Stories of Our Times. My colleague, John Simpson, the crime correspondent at The Times, is investigating the unsolved murder of a 14-year-old boy in East London back in 2017. Today, on the anniversary of CJ Davis's death, John is hoping to learn exactly what happened.
1: A warning, just before we begin. Some listeners may find some of what we're about to hear distressing. Also, this episode contains some strong language. Last time on Who Killed CJ Davis?
2: All these things that were supposedly keeping my son out of danger was putting him in harm's way.
0: I told him that I'm not gonna let him go. I told him that his mom's coming soon.
3: Other people who were sitting or standing right beside CJ, why can't we hear from them? I believe that there are people out there who knew what happened. No one speaking.
1: I'm standing by Barking Tube station in East London with my producer Poppy. We're going to do an interview with someone we've been waiting months for. We're in a busy street. There's police tape. The main road is cordoned off rerouting traffic. I'm distracted wondering why they've got a forensics team there when a man in plain clothes gets out of an unmarked car and approaches us. You're not John, are you? Oh, yeah. Hi. Oh, yeah. How oh, you do doing? Day, right. Hi, okay. I'm John Simpson, the crime correspondent for The Times. This is episode five of Who Killed CJ Davis? Today marks three years since 14-year-old CJ was killed beside a playground in Forest Gate in Newham, East London. There will be a ceremony of sorts at that spot. Cards and candles. Friends have gathered there every year since the shooting on the 4th of September, back in 2017. And to mark the anniversary, police have launched a new appeal. So today, how do we solve this? Now back to that street corner embarking. Hi. Hi Poppy and I are en route to meet the detective in charge of CJ's case. We've been waiting months to speak to him. The man in plain clothes turns out to be an officer there to collect us. We're taken to the murder squad's building nearby and into an office. My name's Dave Wellems.
4: I'm a detective chief inspector and I work on the Homicide Command. Based in East London where I've been for, must be about past 16 years. So I've dealt with a good number of murders,
1: probably a hundred plus. Detective Chief Inspector Dave Wellams is the lead investigator on CJ's case. He's probably the only person who's pored over these details as much as we have. We're sitting in his office, evidence and photos pinned on the wall. Some are clearly sensitive. They've been covered with large sheets of paper to keep our prying eyes
4: out. First and foremost, I see him as a victim, how he has got to this situation whereby he's in a playground, three in the afternoon, whereby someone, for whatever reason, has pulled out a shotgun and shot him in the head. What justification can there ever be for that? I don't know what you can do as a 14-year-old, really, unless you're wrapped up in that type of crime yourself and there is nothing to suggest that CJ was in anything like that whatsoever. He's like, most young men, they have their own particular issues, but they're small fry. Are you a father? Yes, yeah. I have my own my own children, and I do put myself in CJ's mother's place. Sometimes I, I leave here, I leave my place of work, and I, I go home and I see my kids, and I just want to give them a hug, you know, they're not in that world as far as I'm aware. But then you always have that at the back of your mind and you say, what pressures do they come under? Because it's not unusual, it's not out of the norm. And they may well experience their own pressures. But yes, as a father, you can only feel empathy with uh, CJ's mother.
1: There's one piece of evidence I really want to ask him about. The stolen Range Rover. The car that pulled up by the playground where CJ was at 3pm on the day he was shot.
4: Well, that
1: particular car was on false
4: plates and it takes a while for that journey to be established. But we believe it was stolen a couple of weeks prior to this incident, South London, and we believe we can track that Range Rover and it comes into the East End. It starts its life, if you like, for our inquiry in Becton. That area.
1: It's worth remembering now the significance of what DCI Wellams has just said. Beckton is an area in the south of Newham, the borough in East London where CJ was killed. The Beckton boys, as the police call them, are a gang from that area. We believe CJ's murder was a result of the Beckton boys venturing into North Newham. Their rival's territory and looking for someone to kill or maim. We don't believe CJ was the target, but a senior member of Wood Grange, the Becton boys' rivals. Now, back to that stolen car. What happens to it for those preceding
4: weeks, we don't know. Don't know where it is, but it forms the identity of a genuine car, a genuine Range Rover, same colour, same make, same model. So now you have two cars with the same plate on. And on the day in question, when... CJ was murdered this Range Rover we know travelled up from Becton up to the scene the incident occurs and then it makes its way back into Becton where it again disappears so we, we have a good deal of footage
1: tracking that car for best part three quarters of an hour And that's the journey in in totality then. It's a 45-minute round trip, roughly? It is, but um, it's not. And that
4: might sound a bit strange, but that car didn't travel from A direct to B and then back to A. That car came up from Becton and it drove around. And it drove around certain areas. More than just one area, it drove around certain areas. It's looking. We believe that, car the occupant occupants in that car were looking. And this is possibly the third area that it drives around looking for particular people or particular groups of people or a particular gang. Once an incident occurs, then it makes a direct route back. Travels straight back to Pecton and then
1: it's off the radar again. And in all of the footage that's been gathered that you can see how clear a look at the occupant or occupants do you get. It's captured on
4: a number of cameras, it's captured on bus, CCTV, shops, uh, local authority. You, You would think in the amount of footage that we recovered that there would be clear shots of the driver, but the visuals of the occupants
1: Aren't good at all, because the only footage I think I've seen a bit moving for any length of time is from. It looks like it's from a bus, yeah, and it, you know, yeah, it's weaving through that, traffic, but it, probably not.
4: It's not not what you would say. It's not bumping up curbs. It's not. It, it at one point in that uh, footage, it reaches a, a road sign, and it's one of those collapsible ones. If you nudged it, it would fall over. But rather than do that, the driver stops it a little bit, moves out a little bit, drives past it. So taking a a little bit of care is quite fast, but it's not in a manner that you would sort of stop in the street and turn around and say, what the hell is that that driver doing sort of thing? Does that make sense?
3: Would you expect that normally? You'd expect it to be a bit more erratic
4: or or what? You'd probably expect to be a panic there's a a panic, something's happened, you've just discharged a shotgun at someone, good chance you've killed them and you want to flee. But in this case, there wasn't that. It's not something that you're really trying to drive past cars, putting other cars swerving out of the way of you and there's a sort of uh, carnage behind you as you're driving along. It's not that. It's what I would say a controlled, progressive drive. The driver wasn't panicking. You could say maybe not unused to that situation. Maybe that situation has occurred previously, maybe not to that level of violence, but something else, but maybe someone that's involved in criminality
1: as a a matter of course. Can you say how many shooters you believe there were? I mean, or, or how many occupants of the car?
4: The only number we have is the one person that has the shotgun. That person is described to a degree no other people are seen and the person that uh, fires the shotgun at CJ and the other victim runs back to the car and gets in the driver's seat and drives away, which is unusual because you would have thought someone doing that would have had a driver and they would have got into the passenger seat. But that's not the case as we understand it, unless the witnesses are wrong, which I don't believe they are.
1: DCI Wellams has just told us a couple of new facts. Firstly, he referenced the fact that the stolen car drove around Woodgrange territory for a while and that the playground CJ was at was not their first stop. This suggests that the shooter or shooters had no pre-selected target. Secondly, following the murder, the manner in which the car was driven suggests the driver was not unused to these situations. But there's never much time for these interviews. So we have to move things on. I've come across some named individuals from multiple sources um, and some additional information that indicates that these are very serious players in the area uh, and individuals who are very likely to have been involved. Can I put those names to you?
4: No, um,
1: you can't. I, I
4: can't confirm any of the names that you would put to me. I can't give you any further information regarding those names. It's obviously a live investigation and we are hopeful that we will get a, um, a case against certain people in the future. And I really can't comment on those names that you have.
1: How confident or how hopeful are you of a conviction here? And, and what would you need from this stage in order to get that conviction? The easy answer to that is that there
4: were, by our reckoning, at least seven to eight people present with CJ when this happens. I'm pretty sure that some, if not all of those people, would know who this person was despite him being masked up, despite him wearing a hoodie. I'm pretty sure they would know. I would need those people to come forward and actually provide me with statements to that effect as to what they know. So far, they have been reluctant to engage with police. They see it as a form of snitching, but at the end of the day, we have a 14-year-old boy. Um, a mother has lost their son and something really needs to be done.
1: There's a code of silence. There's also a code of fear. To that young man, he's very aware of what happens to him. If, if he so much as speaks to you, I I would assume. How do you address that? There's
4: always going to be this element of fear. At some point, though, these young men have to break free of the life that they are involved in. They have to break free of the gangs. it's, It's never going to end well, for them. They need to break away from that. We can help them. We can help them with the local authorities and with possible moves out of the area and give themselves a chance to start again and wipe the slate clean. I mean, are we talking witness protection? Yes, at at, um, the far end of the scale,
1: that does come down to witness protection. Yes. It's important to understand how far DCI Wellams is willing to go in order to solve this case. He'll need to be able to motivate people to breach that code of silence and fear we've repeatedly come up against during this series. One option is witness protection. It's expensive, but in extreme cases, people could be given new identities, new names, new lives. All options are on
4: the table. It depends what that that person has seen, what that person can bring to the table, how that helps the investigation. But yes, nothing
1: is ruled out. And I guess... You know, that's a lot to ask. Definitely.
4: It's a complete change of lifestyle and someone needs to fully engage with that process. That's not a half-in, half-out process.
1: You need to fully engage with that. And is it simply for you the moral compulsion to do the right thing? You know, where, where where do you see the motivation that gets them over the line, almost almost literally over the line and into a police station. There is the the moral question around this and what they
4: believe is acceptable, what I believe is acceptable in society. It's three years, no one has come forward. So the moral side of things must be balanced by the fear side. And if they are fearful of retribution and, their lifestyle that they actually lead at the moment, but they, they want to break free of that, and they enough is enough, they want to change, then they need to come forward.
5: I'm a criminologist, urban youth specialist. I'm um, also the director of Solve, the Centre for Youth Violence and Conflict.
1: Craig Pinckney is someone we've wanted to speak to from the beginning of our investigation. He's from Birmingham. His work centres on the world of gangs, social media, and in particular drill music. It's a type of rap music common in inner cities in the UK. The lyrics to most tracks are dark and filled with references to stabbings, shootings and murders. The videos on YouTube and elsewhere have become a mode of communication for warring gangs to call each other out and threaten each other. Often the videos have well over a million views. I asked Craig about the drill scene in Newham.
5: Yes, it has a reputation. You tend to find those individuals that are the most popular. The reason why the artists are so popular from Newham is because when we talk about the audience, they do a background check.
1: This background check... Is a process of verifying that rappers aren't bragging about things they haven't done, usually checking that if they say they've stabbed, shot or killed someone, they have. The checks are often carried out by other gang members, but increasingly it can be young people who have nothing to do with the violent reality of somewhere like Newham. Fans online in their bedrooms.
5: Those two groups that are opposing each other in Newham, are both well-known to be involved in in, in extreme levels of violence.
1: Any more extreme than anywhere else?
5: I'm not going to say more extreme. I'm going to use the word extreme because the point I'm making is anywhere you find the most talented is generally the most high levels of violence. So if you look at it from a statistical perspective, if I looked at Birmingham, for example, and I looked at a particular area where it's known for hotspot areas, I can guarantee that the the local artist that lives there is probably going to be the most popular in Birmingham for the fact that he lives in a region and area that is known and the same in different parts of London um, like newham and south london where there's high levels of violent crime
1: and that kind of reflects the complexity of of gang Membership
5: Most definitely Membership because first. if we then go into the world of CJ, from his perspective, he's going to think and believe that he's part of the group, he's part of the gang because he lives within the region, he lives within the area. This is why it's never straightforward when we talk about the construct of street gangs within the UK because there is no clear leadership. It is quite sporadic and young people only identify you as an individual um, to be a member Unless you're doing something actively for the gang, hanging around doesn't make you an individual that is involved. However, as an individual that works with young people that are victims of, you know, criminal exploitation and gangs and whatnot, just hanging around means that you're under conveyor belt to potentially be. And whilst you're on the conveyor belt, you're also in danger of individuals that are outside of your locality that may not necessarily know what level of involvement you are on the conveyor belt. So I can harm you with the thinking that, well, you know these guys, you're amongst these guys, but the guys themselves don't recognise you as an individual that's actually a, a firm member.
1: In Newham, CJ was was bound up with, with the group from the Northwood Grange and had, had been on the peripheries of what was going on there. And then in the south, you've got Beckton, and there's, you know, there's one particularly prominent rapper called Young Diz. I'd like, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to send you a link. And I'd just like to play you a verse that Diz made about CJ. It's from Smoky Things.
5: I've heard this song before.
1: The track Craig's listening to is called Smokey Things. It's by Young Diz, or Isaac Donko, the leader of the Becton Boys. He's 23 years old and currently in prison. The song was released in April 2018, about six months after CJ was shot dead. In it, Donko mocks CJ's mother in her grief.
2: Mum kept shedding tears Somebody tell her I don't give a s- son ain't here Ever since her son got dropped, the whole block ain't done here And I was laughing when
1: I
5: saw the pic of a mum
1: just bury her kid
5: the significance at that particular time in history was probably one of the first times that we heard a music video where someone specifically was quite disrespectful about an individual that didn't belong to a gang and how amusing he thought was in the young man's death.
1: The song is Prompted a response from Wood
2: Grange.
1: The gang Young Diz and the Beckton Boys are at war with. The track you're hearing is by a member of the Wood Grange gang. He says, CJ, that's my little bro, but I swear he wasn't involved. This is another account suggesting CJ wasn't a gang member, however much he'd been drawn towards that world. The rapper later mocks young Diz for getting stabbed.
5: If we fast forward now, that is actually something that is quite normal. It was, I would say, the first where that particular song um, was so blatant toward disrespect to family members that it would have buried a child. And to,
1: to a lot of people, this could be seen as a grown man confessing to knowing something about the murder of a child. To, to what extent
5: are we talking about hiding the
1: facts in plain sight here?
5: This is a young man too. Um, I mean, if we're talking about age, clearly obviously he's older than this particular young person that's been affected. I doubt that the thought process would be, oh, there's children here. It's that the ops or the individuals that they have conflict with are in this particular area and we're going to attack them. In
1: 2018, I was shown a database held by the Met Police on which officers had analysed over a 1,000 drill music videos on YouTube. The force had identified more than 600 suspected gang members across London who were linked to the tracks. They'd asked YouTube to take down at least 42 of the songs, but the platform had refused to comply with over a third of these requests. However, it should be noted that there's a growing debate as to whether the music itself is the source of any violence, or whether violence is simply the topic of the lyrics.
5: When you actually kind of look at it and you strip it back away from the word gang and groups and conflict, these are actual basic needs that human beings ultimately are craving for. They want to be safe. These young people have aspirations, even though that's being misinformed by individuals that tell them about their aspirations. So they develop new aspirations and they develop self-esteem around those aspirations. And those basic needs that children need are the same needs that we want as adults. You know, we want to feel safe and secure. We want to feel loved. We want to make sure that we're in a situation where we're able to eat every single day. We have dreams and aspirations. And we as adults do things in order to achieve those things. So when you have children and young people, and you've also got to bear in mind, we're talking about children and their brains are still developing. When we're talking about risky behavior, they don't see the risk that a grown adult would see. So standing in the corner, knowing that there's a there's a high probability of someone driving around and shooting after somebody, those children are not thinking about that. But
1: through the eyes of a child like CJ, a schoolboy struggling for identity who so recently had been chased through the streets in fear for his life, Craig says the experience of hanging around on the corner that day with the rappers and the drug dealers would have given him a sense of belonging.
5: Because what I'm thinking about in the moment is I'm standing up with these guys that are well-known, that's the most important thing going on in the moment. I remember when I was a child and we used to play on the train tracks. Now, when we used to go home, our parents used to absolutely go crazy at us because they would be like, why would you stand near the train tracks knowing that the trains couldn't kill one of you? But I don't recall ever thinking about a train whilst we was playing on the train tracks. It just was something fun to do. And until we start to understand those processes of children and young people, then we can engage with them at a much better frequency where they truly understand ultimately what's happening to them.
3: Yeah, there was a number of things covered up and I was really wishing... Back
1: in the Times radio studios at London Bridge, I'm with my producer, Poppy.
3: Who has come under suspicion for CJ's murder?
1: The police have never charged anyone or named any suspects but we can now reveal the names of three of the four men arrested earlier in this case. All of these men were released without charge due to a lack of evidence. The first is Isaac Donko. He's known as Young Diz. According to a cache of police documents first leaked to me two years ago, Scotland Yard requested the deletion of one of Young Diz's rap videos, and a note was added to CRIMIN, which is a police intelligence database for London. The note made it clear that at that stage, Donko was a suspect, and the police believed that the video was relevant to the murder. The video was called Kermit. I I should stress again that Donko was released without charge. It's believed he would have been recovering from his injuries. He was stabbed and shot two weeks before CJ was murdered.
3: So that's one man, Young Diz. Who are the other two that were arrested and released without charge?
1: The two other men arrested are twin brothers. When young Diz was stabbed and shot, he was targeted outside the home of twin brothers called Hafed and Sabir Rashid. They're known on the street as twin H and twin S. They're aged 24 and both currently in prison.
5: When us are out, listen, furthermore, yeah, f*** it. When we talk, if you're talking about that, yeah, car. Huh, I've really got 11 years for the instant retaliation. You feel me? We're talking... 72. That's twin
1: S in his jail cell talking about the attack on his gang leader, Young Diz. And he mentions instant retaliation.
3: What more do we know about him?
1: Over the course of this investigation, multiple sources in, in the north and the south of Newham uh, have accused twin S. Sabir Rashid of knowing something about CJ's murder. He was jailed last year for kidnap, false imprisonment and robbery after he and three others stripped their victim naked, beat him and poured a corrosive substance over his body. They were seeking recovery of a £10,000 debt. On an account he appears to use, he was confronted over CJ's murder on Instagram. In a series of private messages we've obtained, the source shared screen grabs of that exchange. They seemed to show Rashid talking about the shooting and justifying the fact that someone shot a 14-year-old and gave an account that if true, could only have come from the shooter or someone who was there.
3: He had details.
1: He was certainly speaking as though he had more information than than could have been public at the time.
3: And what about his brother? Who's he?
1: Hafed Rashid, known as Twin H, is in prison for possession of two guns with intent to endanger life. Those weapons were a loaded pistol and a loaded shotgun. In an appeal over the conviction, Rashid claimed he was not a gang member, and he said that young Diz just liked talking about guns we've written to all three in prison a lawyer for isaac donko has responded and during the recording of this podcast series he said mr donko would like me to tell you that he denies any involvement in the murder of corey junior davis and that his heart goes out to the family the lawyer added incidentally both mr sabir and hafed rashid make the same comment
3: obviously we're seeing music videos we're seeing videos where they seem to talk about it But of course, this could be someone talking, as if they have knowledge, that they don't actually have, which is why it's not definitive evidence.
1: There are some drill rappers, of course, who claim to have done things they haven't done. This evidence is increasingly used in court, but it's it's not used as any kind of firm confession to a crime. It's, It's more as kind of bad character evidence.
3: So where does that leave the investigation?
1: If the drill music and other evidence can be taken at face value, it suggests that they might know something, but it doesn't mean that one of them pulled the trigger. These three men were suspects, but they were released without charge. We also know that other members of the Beckton Boys had a motive and access to weapons. So the police are still looking for the person responsible. And last night, the night before this episode was recorded, a source who's been listening to the podcast and knows the Beckton Boys the gang Young Diz and the twins are members of, approached us via the number we've been using for tips. The source brought up uh, another name, a lesser-known member of the group who will require further investigation. This man, he said, drove the car and fired the gun. Throughout the series, we've been trying to get inside the head of a 14-year-old boy. The closest we got was speaking to those who loved him. I'm reading through his psychologist's notes from those working with him in the final three years of his life. We've paraphrased some of those notes and CJ's thoughts are voiced by an actor. I carried a knife because I can't fight.
4: My behaviour is one of drama and I want to help change it. I do things and I don't think about the consequences. But I do apologise and ask for help from Mum. Maybe just too late. I had an argument with mum that turned aggressive. A friend of the family had to get involved to break it up. It was all my fault. Mum was questioning why I had another person's Oyster card and she thought I was lying to her. I'm not happy.
1: But I'd like to be. CJ's case was unique in the level of violence, simply from the fact that he was shot in the head with a shotgun in broad daylight. But CJ's experiences weren't unique. Thousands of children are affected by school exclusions, being targeted by criminals in their schools or pupil referral units, we could have picked any number of stories, but this one was at the sharp end and CJ's experience seemed to be of every element of those stories. It was a a perfect storm.
2: I don't know what to think because I was a Christian before. But my faith has been tried now because of all these kind of things and all this, this turmoil that he's been through. And I, I don't understand how a child gets to go through these things when they're innocent. So for me, that's a big stretch.
1: That's Keisha McLeod, CJ's mum.
2: I'm trying to find my way back, but it's really hard. I can't even imagine. The one thing that I want to do is make sure that if there is a God, that I do get to be with him. Hence what I try to do everything to the best of my ability now. I try to live my life right. I know what's right and wrong. I try to not put it down to faith. I try it down to be just being a good human being. Good person that understands that there is humanity in this world and I try to be, I try to just advocate that. However, yeah, my my faith is real tested right now. I find it hard to pray, but I do talk. So I may say a few things, but it's not like in a prayer form. I'm still in the I don't know because I don't understand how this could affect him, a person that had nothing but love for everybody.
1: We're bringing you a bonus episode later this month. We'll look at fatherhood, race and CJ's story in the context of modern Britain and will speak to someone so far absent from the series. Hello? Hello. How's it Corey? Yeah. Corey, it's John Simpson from The Times.
3: Yeah.
1: But he's finally willing to talk. CJ's dad, Corey Senior.
2: Those are things that could be done. That's what I'm saying. I'm not blaming no one for the situation. But there was things that could have been done. <laughs>
1: This podcast is written and hosted by me, John Simpson, the crime correspondent for The Times. This episode is produced by Poppy Damon and Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, with thanks for additional production support from Brenna Daldorf throughout the series. Sound design is by Carla Patella and Nicholas Rufast. The actor was T on Chance. Original music was composed by Cam Shuck. You can find his work at satellitestudios.co.uk. If you have any information on CJ's death, please contact us using the tip's email, phone number, WhatsApp and Instagram in the podcast description. You can also contact the police. The information is also in the podcast description and they're offering a £20,000 reward. This podcast is also available on the Reporter podcast feed where you can find the whole series. Just search for Reporter wherever you get your podcasts.